Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about two areas where the rules of medicine seem out of date. The first is how we select the best candidates for medical school and residency, and the second is how we pay physicians. Robbie, before we dive deep, can you explain to listeners what these rules are? Jeremy, all doctors adhere to two different sets of rules. They're the written rules. They cover everything from human anatomy and physiology to the current laws and regulations that govern the profession. Then there are the unwritten rules. They dictate the right way to act. These rules, which heavily influence clinician behavior, aren't taught in textbooks or lecture halls. They're observed and subconsciously absorbed by medical students and residents during the decade-long process of medical training and carried with doctors throughout their careers. Most of healthcare's unwritten rules were established long before the 21st century began with its advances in science, technology, and medical practice. Many of these rules are now outdated and they have struck clinical excellence and they hold our nation back. Robbie, why is this important for patients to understand? Jeremy, healthcare professionals appropriately criticize many of medicine's externally imposed written rules. These are the requirements around prior authorizations and restrictions on interstate medical licensing but they rarely question or even consciously think about the unwritten ones. And if we're going to solve the increasing difficulties of American medicine, we're going to need to recognize and address both sets of rules. The healthcare challenges of today, they're massive. As a nation, we spend more than $4.1 trillion annually on medical care. You know, that's 19.7% of America's gross domestic product or GDP. And that's over $12,000 per American, double what almost every other nation in the world spends. And according to the independent and highly respected Commonwealth Fund, the quality of US healthcare, it ranks dead last amongst wealthy nations. Americans have the lowest life expectancy, worst childhood mortality, and highest incidence of maternal deaths. As a nation, Jeremy, we won't solve medicine's cost or quality issues by tinkering at the edges We're making small modifications here and there. No, the problems are growing too rapidly. Instead, if we want to make major improvement, we're going to need to break the current rules. These are unwritten rules. They're the norms and expected behaviors that physicians follow. They define how to provide the best medical care and how to incorporate new technology into medical practice. And they instruct doctors on the relative importance of patient convenience and excessive costs as physicians practice on a day-to-day basis. 
Let's dive deep into the process by which medical schools choose doctors and residency directors select the best candidates in the most competitive specialties. How do both happen? The process is highly competitive. Each year, roughly 50,000 graduating college seniors apply for 20,000 medical school openings. And four years later, there's intense competition for internship and resident positions in the most desired specialties and training programs. Now, Jeremy, imagine you're the dean of the medical school at a prestigious university, or maybe you're the residency director in a highly competitive specialty. You have far more applicants than available positions. Your job is to decide which skills and qualifications separate the best from the rest. Most likely you approach the responsibility as you saw your predecessor or your mentor do it. And that means you rely on standardized exams. These are tests of memory. They require that you memorize thousands of arcade facts and regurgitate them on the exams themselves. Now there's no written requirement that you do so, but when every program in the United States takes the same approach, we could assume that there is an unwritten rule and expectation for people to follow. But ask yourself, Jeremy, why should memorization be considered the most vital skill an applicant must have? The reason is that in the 20th century, memorization was essential. Back then, a doctor wanting to access the totality of medical information would need to lug around a 50-pound backpack stuffed with textbooks and journals. It was impossible to be a physician in the 20th century without an encyclopedic memory. And the most effective instruments for finding out those physicians were national standardized tests of arcane facts. What's different now that makes this rule outdated? The answer is simple. It's called the smartphone. On January 9th of 2007, Steve Jobs announced the first iPhone. In designing and bringing it to market, he broke the rules of his industry. The unwritten rule at the time was that a phone had to be solely a device through which people could talk with each other. Again, this wasn't a written rule. It wasn't a regulatory requirement, it was an unwritten one. It's just what every telephone company did. Jobs realized that a phone could also be a camera. It could be a tool for internet searching and a device in which to text, in addition to being the tool on which two people communicated. communicated. You know, 15 years later, every doctor carries a smartphone in his or her pocket. In seconds, they can access terabytes of medical information. As a consequence of the 21st century, memorization is no longer the profession's defining skill. And yet, deans and residency directors, they still rely on these outdated tests of memory. Professors still give exams that measure memory. And phones are banned from the exam room rather than required on test days. Robbie, what do you recommend? Jeremy, to find the ideal doctors for the 21st century, a better rule would be to identify candidates 
who can, one, use medical technology to access reliable information, two, synthesize medical data into a coherent treatment plan, and three, effectively communicate that, that information to patients from diverse backgrounds. You know, physicians who can do these three things, they'll deliver far better care than the doctors of the 20th century ever could. To help medical schools and residencies identify and train the ideal doctors of tomorrow, I'll offer you two thoughts. First, rather than banning phones from testing centers and peppering students with arcane multiple choice questions, exam writers could use the mobile technology as the source and then ask candidates to apply that clinical information to the examination itself. This approach would more closely simulate future clinical practice. And rather than teaching and testing these arcane facts as the goal of the semester, professors could focus on application. They, of course, would briefly provide the underlying concepts. You've got to understand those. But they could quickly move their lectures to how the information that's available through the internet will be used in clinical practice. You know, near the end of the second year of medical school, this may be really hard to imagine. All future doctors take this national exam called step one, and they skip classes for six to eight weeks, spending 11 hours a day, seven days a week, cramming these facts into, the head, into their heads. You know, they know that their score will determine how competitive a residency position they can obtain. You know, this almost universal absence of students from medical school education led the step one exam designers to now make it pass fail, but that won't change things. Residency directors will still rely on a different exam, this one called step two. You know, if these exams were focused on application of information rather than brute memorization, medical students rather than skipping classes would want to be there. Medical application, unlike medical facts, can't be memorized. They can't be learned from a board preparation book. And testing for it measures the vital skill that doctors will need in the future as they practice medicine in a technologically enabled 21st century. Let's move on to the second topic. What's wrong with how we pay doctors? Jeremy, the biggest problem is the mismatch between the medical problems that most patients have today and the way that physicians are reimbursed for caring for them. Overall, 90% of medical care in the United States is paid on a transactional basis. It's called fee-for-service. The more a doctor does, the more the doctor earns, regardless of whether it's likely to make a major difference for a patient or be relatively ineffectual. This approach made sense in the 20th century. Back then, the medical problems that patients had I'll call them acute and unexpected, appendicitis, a broken bone, a heart attack. And the tools available to doctors, they were limited in numbers and relatively inexpensive. Fast forward to today, chronic diseases like diabetes, heart failure, and high blood pressure account for 70% of medical care. And these types of continuous lifelong diseases, they don't fit well into a quid pro quo 
payment mechanism. Success isn't the result solely of what the doctor does in his or her medical office, but also and equally important what the patient does after leaving the physician's office. The system doesn't reward doctors for keeping people healthy in a transactional reimbursement methodology. They're not rewarded for avoiding complications for chronic diseases. In fact, a transactional reimbursement system pays them the most for treating life-threatening complications of chronic diseases that were fully preventable. It's nearly impossible in a transactional model to identify and reward doctors who are most successful at helping patients avoid problems like heart attacks, cancer, and strokes. Rather than seeing the doctor every three to four months, what patients with chronic diseases require is frequent contact with physicians through telemedicine, wearable devices that measure their blood pressure or blood sugar, telephone conversations, and text. But getting paid in a transactional model for these frequent interactions, that's very difficult and it requires completing lots of paperwork. And as a result, physicians often don't do it. And as a result of that, American healthcare costs have soared and clinical outcomes have languished. Can you dive deeper into how physicians are paid? Jeremy, despite policy experts for decades recognizing this fee-for-service approach drives up the number of procedures and tests without a concomitant increase in clinical outcomes, that's the approach that not only payers, and by payers, I mean the federal government and private businesses prefer, but also the one that doctors and even most patients consider best. All three groups, the insurers, the patients, and the physicians, believe that a quid pro quo methodology is optimal. Insurers find it easier to negotiate lower rates for different procedures than to figure out how to pay doctors based on the total care that a patient requires. Doctors like the piecemeal system. You know, to them, it's logical. Do two operations and you're paid twice as much as for doing one. And of course, patients like it because they feel like the doctor's working for them. But in practice, all three are wrong. At the payer level, researchers and policy experts point out that 25% of the $4 trillion spent annually in American healthcare is wasted, much of it on unnecessary or ineffective treatment. And for patients, despite ever higher out-of-pocket costs for medical treatment, American life expectancy has stayed flat for the past two decades after rising dramatically from 46 years to 75 years over the previous century. You mentioned that this methodology harmed doctors. Can you dive deeper and explain how it happens and what are the impacts? Jeremy, as healthcare costs rose in the 21st century at a rate nearly twice as fast as overall inflation, insurers sought to reduce healthcare expenses by lowering payments to doctors and implementing strict prior authorization requirements. In a transactional payment model, these are the most powerful tools a payer has to curb medical spending and dial back unnecessary services. In turn, doctors were forced to see more patients per day to maintain their incomes. The average visit is now down to 18 minutes. 
And currently, physicians spend up to half of each day on insurance-related tasks, chasing down authorizations and filing paperwork. Doctors today find themselves on a care delivery treadmill. They're forced to run faster and faster and see more and more patients per day. And there's not nearly enough time for them to adequately address all of a patient's complaints and not nearly enough time to prevent the medical problems that have yet to manifest themselves. Under these circumstances, Jeremy, it's no wonder that physicians have grown dissatisfied, frustrated, and fatigued. These are the classic symptoms of burnout. In a 2019 survey, physicians reported that gratitude from and relationships with patients were the most rewarding aspects of medical practice. And yet 87% of doctors say that patients trust them less now than a decade ago. Once again, it's healthcare's transactional payment model that fuels the problem. Whenever the number and complexity of services dictate the payment amount, be it in medicine or car repair or home remodeling, the recipient of the services fears that the provider may be trying to upsell them. For patients and doctors alike, this fear proves unhealthy and it threatens the very fabric of the doctor-patient relationship. If we've been talking about this problematic payment methodology for close to 90 years, what's different now and realistically, what can be done to address it? Jeremy, you're right. The federal government and private insurance companies have tried to fix the problems of physician reimbursement with pay-for-value and pay-for-performance incentives for two decades. Unfortunately, these programs have failed to make much of a difference because they just simply replace one form of transactional payment with another. Instead of paying doctors per visit or procedure, the so-called value-based models reward doctors for meeting dozens of preventive screening targets and other clinical benchmarks. Almost none of these programs have moved the needles on clinical quality because they're just so cumbersome and there are just way, way, way too many metrics that doctors expected to achieve. Instead of this quid pro quo payment methodology, what American medicine needs, it's a relationship-based reimbursement model, a transformational reimbursement system. Of course, breaking a centuries-old rule of how to pay physicians won't be easy. And I don't believe it will happen in a single step. However, a potential starting point would be for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, so-called CMS, to begin with primary care and to shift Medicare reimbursement in a way that allows physicians and patients to form healthier relationships. And the time to do it is right. In November of 2021, CMS announced that the monthly premium for 2022, this year, would increase from $148.50 to $170.10. This is the largest increase in the program's history, and it's going to be a major financial hit for people on a fixed income. Moving from a transactional reimbursement methodology to a transformational one would mean each Medicare rollie would choose and select a primary care doctor as his or her accountable physician. CMS would then pay this primary care physician a single upfront sum to provide a year's worth of medical care to all of the patients who selected them 
based upon the overall health status of the individuals so that when they enroll sicker patients, they'd get more money. And when they enroll healthier ones, they obviously would get paid less. Putting these pieces together, the doctor's base compensation would depend on the number of Medicare enrollees and the complexity of each patient's current medical problems. But in addition to being paid this base sum, that would be on average identical to what physicians earn today. Each primary care physician would be eligible for an added payment every year, depending upon the patient's experience. At the end of the year, enrollees would answer a series of questions about the impact that physician had over the previous 12 months. They'd be asked, did the doctor help you live a healthier life? Did he or she help you make good medical decisions? Do you value your relationship and do you trust your doctor's recommendations? And the added dollars that would be paid out would hopefully lead to improvements in people's health. This would improve the quality of their lives and lower the total cost of their medical care. What would be the non-financial advantages of making this shift? The benefits of this transformational payment model would include increased satisfaction for both doctors and patients because doctors would no longer be paid for each service. They'd be able to spend less time doing paperwork and more time with each patient. In place of these satisfying bureaucratic tasks, physicians would spend the time on what really matters, helping their patients prevent and manage their diseases and keeping people healthy. That's the reason people choose to become doctors in the first place. And it's what gives them fulfillment in their professional lives. Wouldn't this be extremely expensive? You know, Jeremy, with an incentive payment equal to, let's even say 10% of a physician's salary, the added cost would be relatively low. That's because the income of primary care doctors represents only a tiny fraction of the total healthcare expenditures in the United States. But the potential return on this investment, that would be massive. By moving from transactional to transformational payments, patients could better manage their chronic diseases, live a more productive life, and reduce their risks of a heart attack, cancer, or stroke. Undoubtedly, there'll be debate centered on the program's written rules and how the process will be implemented. But if we don't break the current rules on how doctors are paid, we can expect our nation's healthcare problems will only get worse. I appreciate your innovative ideas, Robbie, and willingness to dive deep. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? Jeremy, I'll reemphasize that breaking the rules will be difficult, particularly for many doctors. But I also want to stress that given the magnitude of the current healthcare challenges, small steps just can't be enough. The problems are getting worse too quickly. And of course, there will be many individuals who benefit from the current dysfunctional system who will try their hardest to block the way. But change is possible. Jeremy, just breaking these two rules would begin to propel healthcare from the last century to the current one. It would help to select and train the physicians best able to use modern information technology to access and apply data. And it would shift 
what physicians do from maximizing the volume of medical care they provide to maximizing people's health and minimizing patients' risk of dying. And I'm confident that doing so would benefit doctors and patients alike. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep, with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.